Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strolight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. I don't know about you guys, but that that song gets me freaking pumped, man. Gets me ornery. Then maybe just a little bit mad. Everything that that Tip NZ is talking about in that in that song, just it's a rhyme. It's a reminder every single day of why we're doing this thing. Morning, guys. Morning, Aunt. Morning, Terrence. Jacob. All you cafe Bitcoiner badasses out there. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. That's what you know when somebody like has a corporate lifestyle when they talk like that. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much happening. There's a lot to talk about. Tons. Where shall we begin? Genesis. What's this thing about the Mississippi bill? Did y'all see that? Oh, yeah. This is happening in three places right now, simultaneously, actually. Pretty fascinating what's happening. You know how, like, you know, in human events, when important things happen, a lot of times they'll start happening in multiple places with multiple people all at the same time. It's like this really interesting signaling effect among man, amongst mankind. And so in Mississippi, there was a hearing yesterday on the benefits of Bitcoin for the environment, for taxpayers, local economy. Um, Dennis Porter did the opening statement. Interestingly enough, no, I know there's Bitcoiners who aren't super fond of Dennis Porter for whatever reason. I mean, I guess he's a, I don't know. He's got one of those personalities where it's easy for people to pick on him, maybe. <laughs> I don't ever like all the, you know, I don't have anything really against Dennis, you know, like I, I know all the stuff that goes around with all that. I just usually don't like seeing all that stuff around, like cozying up to the politicians. And I understand that there's like all that stuff around it, but y'all know how I feel about that. So that's where I have it, but it's not, I mean, you know, he's always been nice to me. I just, I worry about this stuff. It's like cozying up to the enemy. You know, it's like, you can't get these guys on your side because they're, you know, either willfully. Why, why, why do you say that? Because they're, they're agents for the, for the enemy. So but, to speak. but they're also humans though. Yeah, they're humans, but their incentives okay, so are here. Well, see, that's an assumption, right? Not all he like. There's different kinds of humans. There's some humans that are straight up lizard people, 
and their incentives are fucked up for sure because that's the way they think and that's the way they are, right? But then there's other people. Here, the, I guess this is the point I'm getting at. There are people in the government who are actually good people, all right? You can't blanket, just paint everybody as, as a lizard person because they're not all lizard people. Some of them are lizard people, yes, 100% agree. Some of them are psychophants and minions of lizard people. There's a huge chunk of the population that, you know, when you have these sociopathic narcissists that get in into power or positions of power, there are people who are attracted to that and they just go with whoever's in power. You know what I mean? They're just, they're not strong people in, in their own right. They don't have sort of their own moral compass. They don't have their own you know, really strong sense of integrity. They don't have a really strong sense of their own values. So when they see somebody who's out there who they think is powerful, they orbit these people. They gravitate to them. They're like, oh, this person's really cool. Look at what he did. He like made fun of that one guy and it was so funny. <laughs> you know, and they, they get into these like orbits. So there's the psychophants and the minions, right? Which serve the lizard people. But then there's people that are actually good people. And this exists in every spectrum of society, whether it's government workers, whether it's military people, there's a bunch of people who look at anybody who's in the military and like, you're just a bunch of freaking warmongers. You just like violence and death and you glorify in it. That's what you want. It's like, you know what? There may be some small chunk of guys in the military who are like that, but the truth is most dudes are not. And uh, a lot of the guys that are attracted to these kind of occupations are actually the opposite of that. They're the sheepdogs. They're the ones who want to protect people. And I'll tell you what, sheepdogs who've seen war, they're the last people who want war, who want violence. Why? Because they know what it looks like. And anyway, I'm get kind of getting off on a rant. I guess my point is, I don't consider educating uh legislators cozying up. I think we need to educate the shit out of them because some of them are going to be good. And I don't know if we can fix the system from within the system. I don't know. I, I kind of think Jeff Booth is right that it, we have to fix the system from outside the system. But any time we can educate legislatures and some of them might be good actors, that will create an effect that allows us to continue to win the race to avoid the war is the way I look. Yeah, I see that. I, I definitely see your point. Um, I think if we're getting into the education piece though, that's where we get back to. And we've talked about this before. If you're positioning yourself as like an expert or an educator in this space, then you better know what you're talking about. And not to say that Dennis doesn't know what he's talking about. I know we're not even trying to talk about that guy right now, but the idea that, you know, I mean, I've seen some of these things that he said about mining and energy and just, you know, I mean, it's let's just leave it at that. You know, our our mindsets of how energy works and mining works aren't aligned. And so when he's out there or not just him, but if people take that kind of like logic about mining and energy usage to, you know, up the mountain and they're talking to those guys like that, I don't I'm, I'm not really here for that. You know what I mean? So that's that's what it is for me, from my perspective. But. I hear what you're saying. As far as this, I mean, the Mississippi bill, it's funny because like you said, it comes off like the heels of this Texas news where Texas is, you know, basically trying to put in this bill that, you know, Texan, uh, the Texan war chest basically can hold Bitcoin, which, you know, I mean, that's, 
again, you know, wherever you are on this spectrum, you know, government and, you know, all this other stuff, it's like big news one way or the other, no way to fight it, you know, hide it. And like to your earlier points about how, you know, it's all these little steps in the right direction. If adoption is your goal and global money usage is your goal, it is steps in the right direction. It's just from the guy on the street trying to accumulate more. It's like people need to hurry up. People need to hurry up. Yes. <laughs> but but see, this is this just one of those things and where it's like, I hear you, brother. And like, I'm, I'm feeling your energy. I get it. Like, I understand. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I, I can agree with what you're saying and that I want to stack, but we just need to understand and remember that this is going to happen. There's going to come a time where states are stacking Bitcoin in their state treasury. It's going to happen. More and more countries are going to stack Bitcoin in their state treasuries. More and more countries and more and more states and more and more jurisdictions are going to pass pro-Bitcoin legislation. And you're going to see this you can already see it, this bifurcation of of like pro versus anti-Bitcoin um, legislation. And it's going to be fascinating to watch the game theory play out as these pro-Bitcoin jurisdictions explode in GDP and they explode in economic activity and the, there's happiness and, and the people are like, you know, what happens to, to people when they get into Bitcoin? Like, how does Bitcoin change people? My observation this is just an opinion, but it makes people better. So if you're in a jurisdiction where the, the, there's this behavioral effect from Bitcoin making people better human beings, and then like if somebody's not around Bitcoin for a while and they, they don't understand that, that's going to sound crazy as hell. All I can say to that is, I don't know, dig in. Do the research learn like <laughs> and, and if it doesn't start happening to you after, you know, let's call it 500 hours of research. I'm not talking like read one article or two or listen to some dumbass uh, on television. I mean, really do the heavy lifting. You get 500 hours into understanding what Bitcoin is. You come to me after that. And if you don't think that this is starting to change you, then fuck I'll give you a hundred thousand sets. You just come and tell me that and give me a freaking invoice, lighting invoice, and I'll shoot you a hundred thousand sets. Peter, go. So this I'm is, probably live to regret that last one, but yeah, anyway. Um, this is this is what I love about the the Bitcoin space and Bitcoin maxis. Um, and just this idea of the crucible that you know, you have on this show, Alex. And unfortunately, sometimes um, some individuals get in the middle of that crucible. And um, that can be really tough. And, you know, one of the things that that it makes me do is it makes me think about, you know, okay, what's really going on here? What's really the truth? And then I have to kind of investigate on my own I have to scratch here. I have to read there. I have to listen here. And I really have to try to separate the signal from the noise. And, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate. And I personally think that people that we recognize as true Bitcoiners 
regardless of whether their short-term uh, outlook may not align with our own. Um, and it, it's also during this period of what I call this transition period. We are in a period of transition where you have a lot of ideas being thrown out, a lot of innovation being created, and not all of it's going to stick. Some of it's going to fall by the wayside. And it appears to me in the short time that I've been in the Bitcoin space that the, the good ideas all fall by the wayside because Bitcoin just doesn't care. It really doesn't care about the bad ideas, and they just don't survive. The, the space and the individuals in this space don't allow it. And eventually, the social consensus, that the programmatic consensus that Bitcoin um, creates and, and actively um, uh, uh, produces on a daily basis, it... it it is what matters. And, you know, I just wish sometimes that we could, as a group of individuals and people, I just wish sometimes that we could avoid hurting those who are true Bitcoiners and just focus on our true enemies and, and the true enemies of Bitcoin. And I think that there is a difference. And I think that some people who, who, you know, we'll just use Dennis as an example. You know, I don't think Dennis did what he did because of any, any, or, or had the ideas or spoke how he spoke or, you know, because he had any um, bad intent for Bitcoin. Um, I think, you know, and, and maybe he's going to be proven wrong in the long run. Maybe he's not. I don't know. Um, I'm, I have my own opinion about that, but it, it doesn't matter in the end. It is TikTok, next block, Bitcoin moves on. And hopefully all of these people who have been pushed out of the space eventually, you know, come back in after the particular issue that was contentious enough to, to drive them from the space, um, you know, resolves itself. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I mean, honestly, we're talking about like our Bitcoin's enemies. I don't even think it's important. Like, yeah, you got to respect your opponent, right? Like, that's always important to respect your opponent. But let's focus on on the good things that Bitcoin can accomplish. You don't even have to worry about any any enemies of Bitcoin. I mean, think about like put put it in perspective, right? A couple of days ago, you had Jamie Dimon saying that Bitcoin was going to go to zero, that it's a pet rock. You know, last week you had Peter Zahan saying that Bitcoin was going to go to negative prices. And then you have a state in the United States that's passing legislation on Bitcoin, right? Like, so that's a good thing. I think that's what you got to focus on is what what are the positives that are coming on, out of here? Yeah. Who, who, okay. Politicians passed it. So what? Right? Like politicians passed Bitcoin being legal tender in El Salvador. You know, like that. Is that bad or is that good? In my mind, I think it's good in the long run because it's just going to expose more people to asking themselves, what is Bitcoin, right? Because you have enough people out there saying Bitcoin's dead or it will die. But then why would you, Why? okay, well, then why would the government, why would my government pass something, you know, at the same time? So you're having these same questions that are happening. So I think a lot of people 
But, you know, and it may make a lot of people ponder. And, and let's be honest, Mississippi is not one of the richest states in the United States. So, like, trying to get Bitcoin to the people who need it, normally it's the people that feel the pain that aren't economically in a good position that adopt Bitcoin first because they're because they're screwed, right? People who, who are living good lives, they have no need of, of a Bitcoin in their life yet. Or they, or they perceive that they don't need Bitcoin, but... I think that's the the main issue is those who feel the pain. And we all look at Sailor like, well, that guy's a billionaire. Why would he need it? Well, that guy is he feels the pain because he's like, I'm not uh I'm not an Amazon, a Microsoft, a Google. I'm a MicroStrategy on on the Nasdaq, you know? And so I think that's that's how he looks. Like you gotta have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder and and that's what the, that's what's going on is is these smaller people and smaller governments and smaller institutions are starting to realize what Bitcoin can do for them and for the world. And that's in my mind, that's a positive because then it helps other people recognize the importance of Bitcoin. Well said, Sean Harris. Well said, uh, there's more. So there's a report submitted to the 87th Texas legislature that's recommending the state of Texas buy Bitcoin, pass self-custody protection laws, and include Bitcoin education in the school system. And also, New Hampshire is doing something similar. I haven't seen the details on New Hampshire yet, but uh, it's another one. The kind of, we kind of started the conversation this morning by saying this is this, this kind of thing happens sometimes in multiple places all at once. Well, this is three different states that the state legislature is hearing this type of stuff uh, and putting it in review. It's pretty, pretty amazing, really. Yeah, right, it's wild. It's wild whenever you see all these like things coming together like this. Because when you're like a stacking pleb, especially early in your journey, you're wondering like, if is this thing like really real or are you just like going off into the woods somewhere? Like you don't really know. And then you see these big, big moves like that. And you're going like, hmm, like if that doesn't like make you like cement your faith, I mean, it, what, are you, what are you waiting for? You know, you got all these big organizations in this cycle and countries and states and governments in this cycle all getting off zero you know and so you're there questioning about your little 500 dollars bag if you made the right choice you know it's like yeah this is we're heading in the right direction yeah these are the, all the little markers and and to sean's point like um you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But the way I think of these kind of things is there's, um, they're all markers in the right direction. But more importantly to me, because you guys have heard me talk about this before, complex systems where you have millions, um, sometimes billions or even trillions of individual nodes or individual actors, and they all influence each other. And that's what determines the overall sort of energetic state of the entire complex system, right? So if you guys have seen documentaries where you, you know, it's like a, a, a ocean documentary and there's like these massive, massive schools of fish 
and they all kind of move together as one gigantic organism. Well, the, the fish on the outsides of the school are, you know, they're, they're like detection mechanisms. They see big predators coming or whatever, and they move a certain way and their movement signals all the others, which signal all the others, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I look at things like states adopting things as like big signals to the schools of fish. You understand what I'm saying? Like humanity, yeah, we all kind of affect our each other and we all have our kind of little spheres of influence, but there are certain entities in human culture that have an outsized impact on the direction that that school kind of shifts. And this is, when you see things like this, that's why it's kind of important in my mind because that's an it has an outsized effect on on the greater culture of humanity. Yeah, and I think it's important too to to recognize, even if, uh, you know, a certain state or country adopts Bitcoin, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin like that doesn't give Bitcoin its its value or the, the truth behind Bitcoin, right? And I think that's what we got to recognize too. And and a lot of Bitcoiners already recognize that we have a lot of distrust in government, um, because of the history of government since basically the beginning of governments on Earth. But, um, you know, it's even the things like like with Plan B, right? When Plan B came out with that model, you know, a lot of people got into Bitcoin because of Plan B's model. And then when his model breaks, uh, then some of those people left because, because right, like, like, you know, or the reason why I got in, I thought I was getting in for one reason, and then then it's not actually true. So then Bitcoin's not true, and I think that's what you have to be careful of is is not getting orange pilled for the wrong reasons. And that was a cool thing about Corey, right? Because Corey was calling out Plan B's models from the beginning. So you know, I think that's what's it's good to understand. You know, to not fall for false narratives when it's something true. Now. Did, did that help some people get into Bitcoin and then they realized that Plan B's model was incorrect and that didn't matter? Yeah, that still helps. So, you know, I think it's Bitcoin's really interesting because it can Trojan horse people and governments and institutions. Uh, it can it can Trojan horse people for the wrong reasons. And then and then those people like some of those people stick around because they start to investigate and do their own work and they really understand what Bitcoin is at a deeper level. I agree with all that. It's hard to tell if that does more good or bad because the people that you dupe uh, with this stupid model, it's unclear if they're going to evangelize against Bitcoin and tell other friends and family because they were the Bitcoin expert and now they don't believe in it. And so people don't have confidence. You need some adoption that's sustainable. And I personally think it's better just to stick with what's uh, less less misleading and more accurate. Yeah, see, this is my point. You guys are touching on the point, exactly. Like, this is the thing about if you're going to be an educator or if you're going to be an expert on something or put out stuff like that, then, you know, it. you, you have to make sure that you're you're correct with this stuff as much as you can because, you know, I mean, okay, just real, real quick example uh, is, and, and I know that I'm going to say something, and I would love for somebody, you know, not, not or maybe not, I would love for somebody to smash it to oblivion, right? But to the casual observer, it looked pretty apparent, I said it the other day, that the fidelity chart that came out a couple of years ago, and it was like $1 million Bitcoin by 2026. Well, the chart that they used to put that out 
uh, you can literally lay it over the stock to flow model. Like it's, <laughs> it's clearly, I mean, again, maybe they didn't get it from the stock to flow model, but to the casual observer, when you see that you're going like, wow, this thing is like, did, did plan B like really push this meme all the way up to fidelity's desk? Like, it's crazy. We got to make sure that these points are, are right. Dude, dude uh, like um, Jurian Timmer, who's the director of Global Macro Fidelity, incredibly smart guy, like incredibly smart. I love his threads and stuff, but he still brings up stock to flow. And it, it's mind boggling. He, he hasn't Meaning got, the model he hasn't, or the concept he hasn't, stock to flow makes sense. The, the model does not. It, it, well, it's so just like in his, it's in his, uh, all his reports and stuff talking about the model, not, yeah, the model, not wow. the idea of stock to flow. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, even the, even, I mean, the model is broken, but I mean, even the idea of stock to flow never really made sense in Bitcoin. I mean, it makes sense. in if I understand stock to flow correctly, I mean, it makes sense in like gold or oil or whatever, you, you like don't. how much, how long, <laughs> how long, you know what this to, is? So stock to flow. Yeah, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. Ant go. I want to hear Ant. Yeah, I mean, can y'all hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, really quick. My understanding of stock to flow in not Bitcoin, like the, you know, outside Bitcoin is like in gold or oil, whatever, where how long would it take to to produce like, the supply that's already above ground. Like if we wanted to do that today, like how long would it, how many days, how, like how long is that going to take? Again, I'm probably wrong. Correct me. But that's been my understanding. Like, you know, that ratio is how long will it take to like get this supply above ground that we have? And then that's a measure of like the stock to the flow. Like how hard is it to get that asset? It's like, you can go, Oh, that's actually pretty hard to get because it would take, x amount of time or resources to get that same amount but with bitcoin <laughs> it's on a schedule you can't do that <laughs> you can't you can't go oh i'm gonna get more bitcoin you know how many days would it take to get the supply that's all, it, it doesn't make sense to me unless yeah, i have a fundamental misunderstanding of dr flow yeah i mean it's simply stated it's a measure of inf it's a measurement of inflation or of scarcity depending on how you look at it I think it makes sense. It's just yeah, it's not just how much you already know. We already know what's going to happen. So it's like predetermined, right? So it doesn't fluctuate like gold does, but it still makes sense. And just it's the stock, the total, I guess, circulating supply out there and, and then the flow of the new issuance. And so that's why I like the next having, it's going to be, you know, quote unquote, more scarce than gold um, because the having cuts in half. So, it makes sense, but I understand what you're saying, and it's kind of like, I don't know. It, yeah, it's, like it's, like it's confusing because it's the first time we have a finite asset that's at scale that's being hopefully used at scale. But yeah, it's just how much is out there versus how much dilution, if any, the rate of dilution you have against the current supply. Yeah, but the, like, so you like something like silver is atrocious because it's so easy to increase the amount of silver as the price goes up because there's so much silver in the ground. That's not that expensive mine. Uh, it's just more expensive than the current price. But as soon as the price doubles, you got all these silver miners mining a shitload of silver. So all the all the money is made by silver miners, not the people going 
YOLO long silver and leveraging and all that crap or shorting, trying to squeeze shorts and stuff like that. They just get wrecked. If stock to flow was a accurate model, why wouldn't it work for Bitcoin Cash or BSV? They have the same exact Bitcoin Cash has the same supply schedule. Yes. So to me, that's why, like right there, you should just stop that it's missing the demand factor and it's pointless. That's a damn good yeah. point. That's a really good point, Neil. Neil like, comes up with some really smart shit every now and then. You notice that? <laughs> He's really smart, unlike us. Unlike us, yeah, he just doesn't talk unless he has something great to say. He, he could say, he could talk all day if he wanted to, and be like, you know, more average. <laughs> I like to listen. Well, See, well, that's the another mark is, of intelligence: liking to listen. That, like, instead of like people that like to run their mouth all the time. <laughs> mark of intelligence, right there. I was going to say that the thing about stock. Well, like, please, is, is, oh. Sorry, I was just going to say one more thing. The thing about stock to flow is that it's it's you it's like what Neil was saying. You can't put price on the stock to flow because you have no idea what the demand's going to be. But what you can do is you can put down. Okay, this is the predicted inflation rate or disinflation rate of Bitcoin or of anything that's that's out there. That's a commodity. It's a the concept of stock to flow is interesting and cool. Um, All right, let's let's uh, uh, one quick comment, and then we're gonna go with Justin and then Peter because these guys have had their hands up for a bit. Justin's had his hand up for a while now. The last thing is, is that 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 thing about the dude from J.P. Morgan um, not updating and he's still talking about this illustrates to me the difference between Bitcoiners who are continually sharpening their axe or continually learning and, and um, growing and getting a better understanding of what's happening and somebody who goes and sees something one time and then they form their opinion and they don't actually grow after that. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon to me. Justin, good morning. What's up, man? Good morning. Um, yeah, thanks for having me up. I just wanted to, uh, it, we seem to maybe have moved past it, so uh, apologies if, if we're, I'm bringing it back up unnecessarily, but uh, speaking to uh, Satoshi Action Fund and, and Dennis Porter and, and educating uh, policymakers on Bitcoin mining, um, you know, I, I just, I think it's important. And uh, I, you know, I met, I, I heard the conversation regarding Mississippi, uh, but you know, there's other states, uh, and I'm not sure if they were brought up before I joined. But New Hampshire, uh, there was a report written, and um, Missouri is 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 working on some similar legislation, as far as I understand it. So, you know, it's just it's one of those aspects where. Um, you know, it, it's trying to find, it's trying to get a foothold on the offensive and, and pointing out uh, the best we can where, where Bitcoin mining isn't the boogeyman, isn't going to boil the oceans, isn't going to destroy uh, the planet um, or the, or the local communities and, and, you know, educating in a, in a good faith effort. And, um, Anyway, I just I just wanted to put that out there. I think um, there's been a, a lot of great conversation about it, but you know, as, as part of a, uh, the presentation with Dennis to to the New Hampshire Crypto Commission on on the technological aspects of Bitcoin mining and, and how it can be incredibly 
beneficial to uh, balancing grids and to bring on new types of generation and um, you know do our best on, on educating the, the folks in the government and I think like you said Alex um, you know you just you, you know there's, I think there are a lot of really good faith efforts uh, happening in the space so I just wanted to share that thanks for having me up you bet Thanks for coming up. All right, real quick before we go to Peter and Dallas and Jim. Good morning. You're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. This is episode 264. Uh, ready for some stats? We'll do those really quick. If you are ready, Ant, the Bitcoin impenetrable force fill level is at. I saw it earlier at 229. It went down a little bit. 229 estimated exahash per second. Or one year, three months from the next having the countdown is on 4,745 sets per United States dollars. Not too late to buy some sets. And 91.75% of the total supply of Bitcoin that will ever be mined in the history of mankind has already been mined and distributed. So, yeah, you might want to get some while, you, while, 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 you know, in case this thing catches on. All right, Peter, what do you got? Okay, so I know I know we live in a different era than what I'm going to mention here, but it just it always amazes me every time I think about that Bitcoin is only 13 years old. I mean, can you imagine at the you know at the the nexus of gold becoming money, you know, having these kinds of conversations within 13 years of that technology uh, spreading uh, amongst humanity and the fact that that this technology has gotten to this point this quickly with so many people and and that the rate of adoption being so incredibly high i it's just this convert these conversations are are i think part of the reason for some of these conversations is because of the the rate that this thing is being adopted, um, and as uh, Sean said, you know, the, the 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 positive things that it is providing for humanity, and it is really it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to 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 wrap your brain around that, you know, we are we are witnessing something that is going to change the course of humanity. It is going to, um, you know, it's probably the single greatest invention uh, in the history of man, and it is something that takes a minute for um, anyone, I think, to uh, be able to wrap their their heads around, especially when you when you start to understand the enormity of this thing. I think it's kind of like a false equivalency though to compare it to gold, because if the internet, you know, existed, I know you can't really do this when gold was around, right? And the type of communications, it probably wouldn't have taken five thousand years for gold to become, to monetize. So I'd say like, you know, 13 years into Bitcoin is more like 1300 years into gold's monetization, right? Or maybe more. So it shouldn't surprise us that it's moving at such a rapid pace. We have, it's building on exponential technologies. I mean, it's great. I'm excited. I think it's crazier that we're just around during the time that it's happening. 
Yeah, and it's also not just the exponential technologies part, but the but the pace of signaling amongst humans has never been as fast as it is right now. Like literally, we're on here every single day. Like we're way ahead of the mainstream media a lot of the time. Like we're discovering things and discussing things before you see them on the mainstream media. Or if they do talk about them on the mainstream media, they don't even understand what it is they're talking about. And we're just seeing this signaling process amongst humans at a highly, highly accelerated rate right now. So speaking of Alex, speak, yeah, speaking of when, I, oh, sorry, Neil. I just want to expand on what Alex said, but even with the signaling, you know, I tweeted some, something out yesterday, like how are there 10,000 people in the world that know Bitcoin, have an understanding of it as well as you do? Probably not, right? Like just 10,000. Um, and people say, oh, how's Bitcoin only at $21,000? It's because not that people get it, but it's, it's moving. Sorry. I, go. I, I, I want to say, Alex, that when when Jamie Dimon was on CNBC at Davos the other day in that clip, I was tr I was floored when Joe Kernan, the uh, CNBC commentator, uh, came back at him and started talking about the absolute scarcity of 21 million and some of the other properties of Bitcoin. I was I was floored. I did not understand. I did not realize that 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 individual had such a grasp on some of the properties of Bitcoin. And um, I think this is a very, very positive thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, because how long, how long, well, I don't know about that. Like maybe so, but like I have never, I have personally never seen him say anything like that in a, in a venue as important as where he was, where he's at Davos, he's talking to fucking Jamie Dimon, you know what I'm saying? And he's coming back at him with this stuff. And that means he has stepped through that one-way door. We have absorbed another person. Yeah, there's like three or four of those guys up there that, you know, I see around CNBC and stuff. And they're either on different varying levels of shitcoinery and, you know, different things. But he's been one that's been on Bitcoin for a while. Yeah, Joe's been, Joe's been getting pretty good. Yeah. One thing I'll say is, is if Bitcoin was a, a child, he would say, Dad, I'm 14, not 13. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Sit up straight, Sam. Sit I up straight. Copied please. what uh, Peter said before. I wasn't even thinking about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Too funny, Dallas. What do you got? Yeah, good to see you, fellas. Um, curious. I don't know if you guys talked much about Jamie Dimon earlier than that, but do you? What's your guys' gut? Do you think that he is well aware exactly what Bitcoin is and is just literally lying, or do you think that he still doesn't fully get it? Yeah. Much, I think, and he kind of made up his mind incorrectly, but he'll, he'll read this in time. But it, it, it might take a Terrence, connection sucks. yeah, it's choppy. Terrence Matrix, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think this is some like just the way he talks does not seem like he gets it. It doesn't seem like some gaslighting attempt, it just seems like he doesn't get it, but maybe he does. I mean, he could just be a boomer that's. That I mean, I mean, think about the Bitcoin, the blockchain, not Bitcoin narrative that was brought up. I mean, that's from 2017. Like, is he? I don't know. Is he a boomer that's just that far behind, or is he recognizing like, hey, all these ICOs made money, all this DeFi made a bunch of money. The VCs want they want tokens. So to him, you know, there's a lot of people out there who who correctly state Bitcoin doesn't have any 
any cash flow, right? And I think that's where they get it mixed up is they think that Bitcoin is an investment when it's actually, it's actually savings because it's it's just the money. There is no yield on Bitcoin. And so we're so caught up in the traditional financial world of for it to make sense, for it to make money, it has to have the fundamentals that we're used to. And those fundamentals include some type of revenues or cash flows, which Bitcoin will never have. It can't have. Yeah, he's just, you know, he's a billionaire, Jamie Dimon, right? So he has no intellectual curiosity to like figure this out. It doesn't concern. It just <laughs> goes outside. Well, also, also like for their business, I mean, it's probably, you know, elephant in the room, obvious, but like, you know, their business, right? They, what do they do? They want to hold your money, which, you know, if you're self-custodied, like they're, you know, nobody's making money on that at, at JP Morgan. So I think that that is like opposite of kind of their, their interests. And so I think there's that, I think that like, I would bet that like he gets part of it, but like, I think that like he like is, he's highly incentivized to, to basically not get it and not close that gap between, you know, where he is and kind of where he needs to be. And um, also, you know, it's like when, when you, when, you know, people like him, when they mention blockchain, it's, it's no secret why they love it. Right. Cause like, you know, the programmability of what is out there of some, you know, things not named Bitcoin, that's like a banker's wet dream. Right. Cause you have, you know, even more control over who has what and the ability to claw it back. And you've got, you know, whatever, like less issues with people, you know, like calling back on payments and trying to cause problems. So like they love that because it, it gives even more control and you know, even like a CCP, or whatever, like they, I'm sure they love like a fully programmable blockchain where you can like claw back funds from people. They, they, that's, that's an ideal setup for them in, in many ways. So I think that they're incentivized to get that and see how that can make sense. And then, you know, even just like all the other coins existing they're they're probably like, ah, who cares? Like these things aren't competing with money. We'll take a piece of the action as people are trading stuff and getting wrecked and, you know, it'll be it'll be business as usual. But when it comes to Bitcoin and being like money, you know, I think I think banks like you know people like J.P. Morgan and Chase like they're they're totally incentivized not to get it because a like they're so close to the issuing of money, and with Bitcoin they're not. Um, and then b like their whole job is to hold your money, which you don't need them to do. And so, you know, it's gonna be a it's gonna be I think a rickety <laughs> like ride for them to continue not to get it. But it was just I had me laughing at the end when he was like, who knows if Satoshi doesn't come back and. You know, makes more bitcoins for himself or whatever it's just like it's so you know so so like telling that like yeah. that's just a stupid thing to say out loud but yeah anyway on the on the flip side of that so he either maybe he doesn't get it he's highly incentivized up incentivized to not get it but what if he does get it and you know he's just poop talking about it that actually makes a great deal of sense too because you poop talk about your um people who are a potential threat to your position or they're a competitor to your position that you want to ascend to, right? Like you don't, you don't poop talk people who are weaker than your position. Like there's no point. How, how, How is it that I bring up this incredibly positive thing about Joe Kernan, a guy who was on television every single day for three hours a day on the most, the most watched business program who is, like understands obviously understands at least some of the properties of Bitcoin, and the whole conversation is about fucking Jamie Dimon. Pete, I, because because we already nuts. knew we already knew that he was a Bitcoin maxi. He's already yeah. like, that's not the first time that he's come out and said this stuff. Like that, like, we already knew that. 
Yeah, it wasn't my point. My point is, is that we as Bitcoiners or as humans, I guess, immediately gravitate towards the towards this negative kind of message. And, you know, how no, it's we not the negative about, message. Negative. But to me, it's not the negative message. To me, it's the marker of that that super signaler. Right. JP Morgan is a super signaler in the complex system. All right. Goldman Sachs is a super signaler in the complex system. Fidelity is a super signaler. Uh, Powell is a super super signaler. Jamie Dimon is a super signaler. You understand what I'm saying? When a state like Texas adopts legislation that protects self custody or says we're going to put Bitcoin on the on the state treasury, that's a super signaler in the human complex system ecosystem. My, that, that's why it's important. My, I understand why it's important, Alex. My point my point was is that. This goes back to our earlier how this conversation kind of started when we were talking about the educators in the in the uh, in the space and people in the space and how people get kind of driven out of the space. That that was my point is that we as humans, we as individuals, we here in the crucible have a tendency to focus instead of on the positive. Sometimes we focus on the negative. Yeah, it's natural. Like we're humans. Everybody wants a new challenge. And if the guy at NBC gets Bitcoin, we're like, sweet, he gets it. Now who's next? And then if you've got JP Morgan, who's in, or not JP Morgan, but Jamie Dimon, who's in charge of you know, trillions of trillions of dollars in assets, like, you know, Bitcoiners naturally, you know, I mean, but when he says things that are so fraudulently false, like, of course, that's going to be the story. You know, people are going to yeah. reflexively react to that. And then um, one last thing, and then we're going to go to Jim, who's been waiting patiently. There, there's this website called They Own Bitcoin or, or BitcoinReserve.com. They own Bitcoin.BitcoinReserve.com. Go check it out. It lists all these different people who own Bitcoin Tim Cook, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, Michael Saylor, Reed Hoffman, Bill Gross, Ricardo Salinas Pliego, Steve Wozniak, Ray Dalio, Bill Miller, Peter Thiel, Stanley Druckenmiller. Um, you know what? I'll tweet out the link. When Jim starts talking, I'll tweet out the link and um, and I'll nest it. Go ahead, Jim. Good morning. Good morning. Always a great conversation. Uh, I don't envy the challenge you have trying to keep this thing flowing in a in a reasonable direction because um, the whole reason I raised my hand was to make a comment about stock to flow. So now the whole conversation goes backwards again, and I apologize. But I think for those who don't fully understand stock to flow, um, what I want to say might be helpful. Um, you guys covered it in various ways, but there was one thing I didn't hear, which is why I wanted to say something. Um, you have a certain amount of stock, then the amount of flow is how much new stock is created, as you guys alluded to. And I think Sam mentioned about how silver, you know, if the price of silver goes up enough, there's plenty of it out there and silver miners will go start looking for it because it's worth it. It becomes profitable. And the thing that I didn't hear anybody mention is that the way Bitcoin was designed is that if the value goes up a lot, no matter how hard people want to get more because it's more valuable, they just can't because of what we call the difficulty adjustment. Um, in the real world, as many people as want to can go out and start digging in the ground and find those new resources or the ones that haven't been uncovered yet. But with Bitcoin, because of the issuance rate and the difficulty adjustment every two weeks, if more people try harder because the price spikes, 
in two weeks, the difficulty adjustment will take away that advantage and make it harder for everybody and relevels the playing field. And so the stock to flow of Bitcoin is set forever and can never be changed. And that is a very important uh, aspect of, of Bitcoin. It's why I think the stock to flow analysis was brought into Bitcoin because Bitcoin resists the natural um, consequence of a, an asset going up in value and other people deciding I'm getting in the game and then that readjusts all prices. That's the that's the capitalist market. When supply and demand change, prices change to reflect the supply versus the demand. And that's a function of stock to flow. And so it's, you know, plan B came up with this whole thing and everybody jumped on because that logic of how you can't make more Bitcoin faster no matter what the price is resonated with a lot of people. But unfortunately, stock to flow doesn't uh, include things like a pandemic on the outside or implosions of things like FTX and leverage and stuff that's that you can't see behind the system that causes people that are buying and selling to change their mind and not even think about stock to flow. It's like, oh, Bitcoin's falling apart, sell it, whatever. So stock to flow is under that. It does underlie a lot of the fundamentals about why Bitcoin is actually valuable, but it's not going to really affect the day-to-day -day price when there's enough other things out there in the marketplace that also can. So I think I just wanted to add that. I hope it wasn't a waste of everybody's time. Thank you very much, Alex. No, I thought that was great, Jim. I mean, that's the point. Like, it doesn't really work. That's the point I was trying to get to earlier. Like, for my, for me, that whole thing didn't really work because it breaks down because you can't go mine more if you want. If everybody get the price goes up and then like, well, we'll just bring all these miners on and we're going to mine all the Bitcoin we can. Doesn't work that way here. And then to your point, Alex, about these people that are like holding Bitcoin and spreading FUD and whatever. I mean, this is like, one of my core beliefs, you know, when you're living through this one time only accumulation phase, you can't trust what people are saying. It's if this is a new gold rush, there's going to be a lot of, you know, like grifters and scammers trying to take your corn and trying to stop you from getting corn. But this is a one time only event. And you can't trust anybody. You have to, like, trust yourself and do your own research. I'm so fucking bullish after I hear you, Ant. God damn it. Now I got to go buy Bitcoin. What's up, Dr. Jeff? Is he is he Dr. Bull now or what? Hey, morning, Dallas. Morning, everybody. Hope y'all are doing well. Morning, brother. Yeah, I'm feeling good. Um, I keep talking about global liquidity. I just posted this morning. China just injected another many billion. I got to look at my tweet to see what they did. They injected 48 billion worth of liquidity in their financial system versus their uh, are using their reverse repo operations. Uh, their total this week is 301.5 billion. And so why that's relevant is global liquidity has been contracting since the fourth quarter of 2021, basically, but it bottomed in the fourth quarter of 2022. And mostly thanks to what China is doing, it's starting to ramp up again. And what's cool about Bitcoin is it's a global asset. And so if there's increased liquidity happening on a net scale throughout the world, um, then uh, Bitcoin should be a beneficiary of it. 
Um, so, you know, that's my take on it. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling bullish. Risk assets in general, almost across the board, are responding positively. If you look kind of across almost all charts of risk assets uh, and bonds and the dollar, um, all of them basically, you know, the dollar peaked and, the, and risk assets bottomed basically in October of 2022. And they've been marching high uh, since then. My, my system doesn't try to time bottoms. It confirms bottoms. And so lots of uh, bottoms have been confirmed uh, both here in the U.S. and internationally across equities, uh, Bitcoin as well, obviously. And so anyways, I just think there's been a regime change. I I flipped uh, basically bullish. There's still lots to be concerned about. There's still an earnings recession happening. Um, But uh, fighting global liquidity is tough. And uh, I'm I'm very optimistic at this point for Bitcoin. I still think at some point down the road, we, we may have a recessionary bear market. But that's down the road, and it looks like it's uh, it's further away. Um, so, anyways, yes, thanks. Good morning, everybody. I'm doing great. Good morning. I got. I, I have a question for. It's just kind of like a question for Sam and for Dr. Jeff, and maybe anyone else. It's it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Like uh, you know, back in the beginning of 2022, when the United States took Russia, well, when the United States sanctioned Russia and people said that was like the end of the United States as the global reserve currency. What, how do you know if like, how do we know when the end of the United States dollar actually, like when is that the end of it as the global reserve currency or global reserve asset? Would you know right away? Like, do we, do we still think that it's like the global reserve asset? Like, how does that even work out? Like, how do you know when that actually stops? Uh, I mean, not that I'm not pretending to be an expert on this, Sean, but I mean, I think two of the biggest things for me is like, one, you still have a, a ton of countries where they denominate their debt in dollars. And so that's a big factor. And then the other side is, you know, how much global trade still happens in it. There's obviously a lot more now. We're seeing the cracks where countries are willing to work with each other and just totally circumvent the dollar. So as we see more of that, it's you know going to continue to chip away. But it's I think by, any, you know, by any reasonable like observation, it's going to be. Uh, a gradual thing it's not going to be probably like an overnight like oh wow now it's not the global reserve it's going to it's going to keep kind of fracturing um as it makes sense for these other countries to do their own thing where, where they can but some of them are still absolutely just like tied up in a, in a in a system in a way of like you know how they've issued debt where they're they're kind of stuck and they, they kind of have to just be a slave to the dollar a lot of countries for, for the foreseeable future i think yeah, and I'll jump in here. So, so the the loss or gain of of the dollar as being the reserve status isn't a point or or like a you know a, a point in time. It's a it's basically a process, and there's different things you can look at to see. So 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 like three different things that I consider is is one, you look at like it, uh, what's global trade being priced in. Uh, is it in the dollar or is it in something else? And two, uh, what about cross-border transactions? Is that in the dollar or something else? And then finally, what about um, like foreign exchanges? Are they holding um, U.S. dollars and treasuries as a reserve asset? Um, those three things kind of all combine together. And just and just real quickly, and looking this up now, I don't know how current this is, but um, about 80% of all uh, global cross-border transactions are in the dollar. Um, about 40% of global trade is in the dollar and about, uh, looks like 65% maybe of foreign exchange holdings, uh, are in dollars or treasuries. So that's a process. All of that is like kind of on the descent. 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it, I would say it's very slowly losing its reserve status, but it's going to take a long time. Like this isn't happening this year or next year or anything like that. It's going to, it's going to be a long process. Yeah. I don't know if I have much to add there. I would look at the reserves. I think that's really important. Kind of what Dr. Jeff just said. Jeff, what do you think about like how inflation's playing out? You know, it's obviously a measurement of like 12 months ago looking back at it, but do you like over the next like 12 months or kind of on the other side of this, like, do you think we're at all like going to be back in an environment where inflation's like at least by the kind of garbage metrics that they put out where like it looks air quote like low and they're just in like a low interest rate environment again? Or do you think that they're like, because they, you know, got a bit over their skis, we're just going to be in this like, I don't know, in like some kind of weird middle territory again where we're not quite back to like super cheap money environment like we were before like do you, do you think that those times are sort of like behind us just because of mistakes made prior or like what do we like what is the u.s sort of system and like the like macro system look like kind of as we come out of this if we if it's even possible to come out of like what we're in yeah i think dallas is a good question and i think i'm i'm um of the opinion that inflation is going to be surprisingly low uh, by the end of this year, uh, CPI. And one big reason is because of they're changing the way of how they calculate it. And instead of uh, instead of in the past where they've looked at the past two years combined, they take that average and then they pull forward to say what inflation is this year on a year over year basis. They're just looking at the past year. Uh, and that's a, that's a big deal, right? Because this past year has been we've seen inflation just absolutely surge up to a peak of 9.1%. So now that's our year over year comparison. And so um, uh, when you're looking at that, so starting in when they announce in February, they'll announce the January CPI. I would expect that to be significantly lower um, than whatever the December reading is. Uh, if that, I think, was it, was it December? That was 6.5%, I think. So, so when they actually report January, I'm thinking it's going to be closer to four, maybe somewhere in there. And then by the end of the year, when you look at those year over year comparisons, and then you factor in that they use the owner's equivalent rent, which is basically what did the housing market do about 12 to 15 months ago? When you look at that, um, that's two huge factors. That's going to be dropping off as well. Uh, obviously, housing is, is kind of tanking right now. Um, and so the, all of those comparisons that I look at, and, and especially if we get any kind of deflationary type event, which I, I'm not saying we will, but it's possible, uh, unless we have some huge surprise to the upsides on, on inflation, I would think by the end of the year, we're going to have kind of 2%. We may have kind of, I'm looking at like 2% plus or minus 2%. So like zero to 4% CPI based on the new calculations and based on the trends of things. Um, so yeah, I would say that would, that's really going to uh, make a difference for what the Fed has to do. And, and hopefully um, by that point, they will have pivoted and they'll be lowering rates again. Uh, but you know, that's, who knows? That's just my guess. So, so you're saying that, that, you know, they can come on TV and say inflation's at 1%, but then everyone will be seeing prices going up by 15% or so like that. They'll just take everything out of the out of the basket of CPI. Right. Well, and it's not even how they take it out of the basket. That, that's what they've done in the past, right? But this is just a, it's just a change in how they report the metrics, um, and because they're just doing a direct year over year comparison, and because this 2022 was such just a massive year for ramping up inflation, that's the comparison that we're comparing against. So there's like no way we'll be that high. It's actually possible we see deflation uh, by the summer. 
um, which means uh, negative year-over-year inflation growth. Um, and so, will but in, and to your point, Sean, yeah, we're still going to be looking at prices at the grocery store. We're like, well, wait, these are still pretty high. What do you mean inflation is low? And the Fed is going to say, believe me, um, it's low. And so that's just how how it all works, right? You gotta you gotta trust them, trust trust Powell, trust the Fed. They're telling us the truth. Well, because like the prices you'll look at, you'll be like, well, wait, two years ago they they weren't they're higher than they were, but even though like but the the inflation reading is year over year, and like for it to be like nine again, it has to be nine above you know nine above the year prior. So it's like it, it's really tough to do that because it would have to be essentially sort of eighteen percent above what kind of whatever that baseline is two years before. And so, yeah, there's a lot of people where, yeah, exactly. They can get on TV and say, oh, my God, like, it looks amazing. It's because the last year was such an outlier and such a squeeze on, you know, production lines for, you know, for, for uh, our supply chains. And also, you know, you have, like, just all this money working its way through the system. And then now, yeah, they could, you're right, they could actually have that platform. They go, look, like, inflation's low. But, like, you're like, bro, look at eggs. Like, eggs are so much more now than they were two years ago. And it's never going back the other way. It's a it's a funky fugazi of a never? budget, for sure. What? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would I would say like the easiest way to think about it is that inflation is a measurement of acceleration, right? So how fast are prices moving one way or another? So, you know, if you're driving a car, if you start in New York City, you start accelerating fast, you go up to 80 miles per hour, and then you slow down to 60 miles an hour. Well, your acceleration's gone down, but that doesn't mean that you're back in New York City you know, you still keep going one way. And I think that's that's what a lot of people don't understand when they talk about CPI, they talk about inflation. It's a measurement of, of acceleration. It's not a measurement of distance. And so the distance that we keep gaining as a function of, of inflation will keep growing regardless if actual acceleration slows or not. That's a good analogy. Pretty smart for a jock. I'm just a basketball player. Could I ask you guys, a, you fellas, a lightning <laughs> question? Do you, uh, for those of you guys who are up here doing lightning transactions and or receiving, do you guys prefer to do so with like standard kind of like lightning invoicing or do you like LNURL? Like what do you find yourself using more if you've used both? I guess nobody has the answer to that question. Yeah, like, I didn't even watching, catch the question. Can we ask that question? Ask it again. Yeah. You fellas watching Jamie Diamond highlight tapes, or what are you? What are you guys doing up here? Um, no, I'm saying My, like Michael, for, jo for, Michael Jordan highlight tapes. <laughs> nice, exactly. Um, what him playing baseball or what? Um, no, my question was about Lightning. So it's like if you guys are using Lightning, have you have you a used like normal like invoicing? We're doing you know for sending and receiving or have and or have you used lnurl and which do you sort of prefer where you've got you know a singular lnur uh url uh string or, or at you can share with somebody and kind of reuse that same address you don't have to enter the amount or do you like actually you know the the, the process of having to put a, a you know an amount of sats for an invoice and do you guys have a preference on that uh so yeah i've done a lot of lightning stuff i mean i'm no lightning dev but i've used lightning a lot um so for me personally, like, what do I, what do I prefer? Like having an LNURL is really easy because it's basically like having an email address and you just remember that. And then you just, and then if someone wants to send you sats, you can just say, okay, well, here's my LNURL. 
and that's it's like an email address right like it, everyone can remember oh what's your email address what's your phone number what's your ln url it's very easy to remember and then someone can enter in your ln url and then send you however many sats that you guys have agreed upon an invoice is nice too you know if you if you're if you have your phone on you and you're right there and you want to do an invoice um honestly either works now that now like lightning will allow you to do a static qr code where you can even send over your QR code, which is basically like your LN URL, but in a static QR code, and then people can send you as many stats as you want. So honestly, I don't think it really matters. If you can do like all three of those things, that's awesome. The, the What used to suck was, you know, maybe even up to a year ago or a little bit more than that, you there was no LN URL or, or static lightning, you know, lightning code in most in most lightning wallets. And so that's what's kind of cool about, you know, the last year or so that's changed and um, and it's just made the functionality of Lightning even better and even more user friendly. One of the there's use cases for, for each and one of the use cases that we've been that I've been involved with uh, in StackChain with using the uh, URL version is uh, we're playing a game within the game and we deposit sats into um, that particular uh, URL. And then uh, at the end of the game, within the game, um, those sats are then invoiced out to the people who have who have won um, that game. And uh, just because I'm a man of my word, I wanted to say, Ant, you inspired me, and I just uh, purchased block twenty six sixty four. Excuse me, block twenty six forty five on the stack chain because uh, you got me so damn bullish. I had to buy more. Nice opsec, Peter. Oh, I don't care. No, I appreciate the feedback from you guys. I think, uh, like, I mean, I'm, I'm building something right now. I'm just curious what people like using. I mean, I think the invoicing is cool for businesses, for sure. I think, like, for normal people, like, peer-to-peer, it's kind of clunky. If it's like, well, no, no, put in the amount first before I send, like, it, it's sort of backwards from, I mean, I guess you can put a request on, like, typical kind of fiat payment sending apps. And so people aren't, like, totally foreign to that experience. But I, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of just scan and choose the amount that you want but i i could see the you know the need for both but lnurl is a big deal because then you can just have a single address that you could use over and over again for lightning payments so i think i think it's gonna be bigger but it's, it's surprising to me that a lot of wallets like i mean moon doesn't support lnurl and a number of them and like they kind of you know force people into invoicing um i mean i guess some of them have like open invoicing where you don't have to enter an amount which is kind of nice but i think the wallets that like are like, you know, when you go to scan a QR and it's like, no, like you, I need an, an, an amount in this invoice. I think that's a big UI UX mistake by some of these wallets. I think that's like really clunky and stupid and they should try to make, uh, not make that a requirement for senders and receivers. Just yeah. Two cents, but. Yeah. I think, I think one more thing that would be nice if you, if you could with an LN URL would be able to save, save that person as a contact if you wanted to. And then that way, I like, guess if you knew you were going to do more transactions with that same person, then you wouldn't have to remember their LN URL. You could just remember their, their name and then save their LN URL. And then you could, it's like on your phone, right? When I call, if I'm going to call Dallas, I don't type your phone number in. I just click call Dallas rushing, right? Like that's all I do. And I don't have to type in your actual phone number. So that could be another cool thing about LNURL in the future. And I don't know, maybe that's in some wallets that I just haven't used yet, but that'd be kind of cool to be able to save save contacts. And then that way you don't have to worry about remembering people's LNURLs. Yeah, hey. like what about short-term pools like where people keep having to pay in, like things like fantasy football for a season. You know, you have to pay your dues and then 
you have to pay five dollars every time you pick someone up and like all those little things and then at the end of the year there's like this series of payouts that happens from everybody's you know pool like you know it would be good for for that because you have like one place for all of the you know participants to you know make their payments to can you do fantasy football with uh dlcs or at least like managing the pot amongst like the group i mean i guess you could do a big multi-sig for the group and they have to be all honest right. at the end of the year but can i just show a little bit of on that real quick just real I'm quick i have to get involved because we're we're starting to talk about fantasy football i can't allow this to happen Go ahead, Nate. <laughs> Yo, yeah. So I just want to say that um, key send has been around since the beginning. You can send lightning directly to a node's public key. Um, that's been around for a long time. That's built built into Zeus and Thunderhub and other things. And one of the big issues with LNURL is it's really hard to self-host an LNURL. Most LNURL wallets are custodial and have very, very low limits like Zebedee. Uh, so that is kind of a downside to LNURL. I'm a big uh, pub key, pay to pub key proponent. Uh, most nodes have that turned on. So if you are like looking for tips or something, you can print out your pub key uh, as a QR code if you want to, and people can just uh, pay to that. Uh, so I, that's all I wanted to say. For the record, Alex, I hate fantasy football. Um, Jeff, I got somebody who DM me and they asked if you... How are you bullish if um, if you see deflation as something likely? And I didn't want to answer for you, but my, my guess was maybe that it's like even in a deflationary environment, there's going to be a lot of liquidity being pushed into the system and Bitcoin is an absorber of that liquidity. Is there more to that or am I totally an idiot? No, it just kind of depends on the timing. If we have a deflationary bust like we saw back in Q4 of 2008 and early 2009, that's bad, right? Everything goes down. The prices of everything get sucked down in the dollar. People generally flock to the dollar, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and risk off assets. But then the other side of that is generally positive. And usually if we're having something like that, some sort of uh, event like that, we're having liquidity concerns too. And that's usually when the central banks step in and, and go for massive new uh, intervention. And so QE is usually firing back up when that happens. So if we actually have a deflationary bust type event, like a true deflationary bust, that's bad in the short term. But what I'm talking more is I think we just have significant disinflation this year that kind of surprises most people. And, and a lot of that is just chicanery, right? It's basically the Fed just changing the way that they, they report CPI because they're doing it year over year now. Um, and then again, the, the housing um, bubble, basically, we're coming off the other side of that. So OER will significantly come down. Now, the one other thing that could happen if we do get a rip in assets, I, commodities could rip higher too, including oil. And oil is a huge factor in, in the CPI calculations as well. So if oil rips higher and gets back up to like, you know, over 100, 120, 130 in that kind of range, that would actually um, be negative. That would actually cause inflation to, to rise higher again. So that's just something to keep an eye on. All right. Uh, let's hit announcements real quick. We're moving into our second hour and we're doing Swan Private Macro Friday. It is Friday after all. So <clears throat> you're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you've never been here before, it's a great place to learn about Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Prefer to hang out for some of the smartest minds in the industry to chill and talk about what's going on. We do this live on Twitter Spaces every day, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. You got to log in. Well, you don't have to use your app. You could actually do it on the computer too. But if you want to talk, you can log in on the app. Um, 
You know, we talk about all kinds of things having to do with Bitcoin. If you can't catch the live show, it's also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw me or Swan follow to be notified of when those drop. A couple of cool things to be aware of. Number one, Swan IRA is live. If you have a Swan account already, uh, just contact your rep or uh, anybody from Swan. We can turn this on for you. <clears throat> and the way it works is that with a couple of clicks, literally like click, click, boom, you'll have an I, a Swan IRA set up. And you can then transfer assets from an existing row through traditional IRA, or you can do rollovers. Terrence knows more about this, uh, but you can roll over from other retirement account types into a SWAN, either Roth or traditional IRA. And uh, you can own Bitcoin in your retirement account. I think this is absolutely fantastic. Like this is like a mind blowing development to me. And it's so slick the way these guys have built this thing is so smooth. You should try it. Every day, Alex talks about this. It triggers me because I remember <laughs> I remember the, the, the nearly two months it took me to move my assets from my custodian to my self-directed IRA. Two fucking months. <laughs> it takes like two seconds now. It's like, click, click, done. Is it, that's it? Yeah, that's it. And then you can just set up a transfer request. It's so amazing. Anyway. Um, moving on, the next thing that's probably good to know about is Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, tickets are on sale at PacificBitcoin2023.com. You can use promo code CAFE for a discount. All right, let's do the Swan Private Macro Friday thing. Joining us today, we have John Har, who's a MD with Swan Private. We've got Terrence Yang, who's also an MD for Swan Private. We've got Sam Callahan, head of research for Swan Private. And we've got other Amazing guests up here as well, including Dr. Bear. Uh, so I'm going to hand it over to Sam and John, whatever you guys want to talk about. Uh, yeah. Hey, everyone. So definitely plenty of things to talk about macro econ stuff, but uh, I feel like there are some more topical things that Sam wanted to cover uh Bitslato, he did a great thread on that and what it potentially means what the regulators and the government was probably after um even though no, no one had heard of Bitslato, i think there may have been more of a story there that i think sam wanted to to lead with sam yeah i did i've been really i've been wanting to talk about this and haven't been able to chat about it um because my knee-jerk reaction was what everybody else was was is like what the hell is Bitslato? And it was hilarious because the DOJ came out. They were like, we're going to do this major announcement, right? And everyone thought it was going to be Binance and stuff, but then it turned out to be this random exchange that nobody had ever heard of. Um, but then like late at night, I, I just, I decided to read the FinCEN order and it was really, really interesting read because basically FinCEN looked at the, the Bitslato as a peer-to-peer -peer exchange. Um, you know, it turns out they're, they're custodial peer-to-peer -peer exchange, which is important, but FinCEN doesn't seem to understand the difference between custodial or non-custodial peer-to-peer exchanges. And what this uh, order was saying was basically how, how can they stop it? Like, how can they stop peer-to-peer -peer exchange? And it's important because it wasn't about um, regulations or the Bank Secrecy Act of not doing KYC or anything like that. The, the, this order was authorized by the Combating Russian Money Laundering Act, um, which, which happened in 2022. And why that's important is it gives the U.S. Treasury, a.k.a. Um, Janet Yellen, it gives Janet Yellen special measures 
And these, these special measures were implemented in 2022. And it really allows her to um, do whatever she wants, whether this is on U.S. soil or not, if it's doing anything to help move illicit funds with Russia. Uh, she really has extraordinary powers. Um, and so obviously, Betzlato, it was really interesting to, to read about these Russian uh, ransomware groups that were using Betzlato for really bad things. I mean, they were shutting down the healthcare systems of countries, the actual governments of Costa Rica. Like these are not good actors by any means. Um, but they were like, okay, so how do we stop this peer-to-peer exchange? And um, what this order reads like is basically an attack on peer-to-peer exchanges um, because they basically say, hey, we don't have the adequate tools to address the risks of a peer-to-peer virtual asset service provider or a VASP. And a VASP is jargon from the Financial Asset Task Force, which is a global, uh, I don't know what you call them, regulator that lays down these guidelines. And so they're using jargon from the FATF um, and they're saying, okay, this is a peer-to-peer VASP and we need to do even more than our special measures. We need to add additional alternative special measures to stop these things. And their alternative special measures were to basically prohibit entirely any kind of funds received from Bitslato. Um, even if somebody just sent uh, you know, Bitcoin to you, you would immediately be prohibited and be breaking the law. And it's just really interesting as setting the precedent for how they would go about stopping these peer-to-peer um, exchanges and then it was very interesting because they highlight Bitcoin throughout it. And Bitcoin, all of their like illicit activity is denominated in Bitcoin. There's some dollar ones, but it's mostly denominated in Bitcoin, despite the fact that Bitslato has multiple assets on it. Uh, all of the illicit activity is in Bitcoin and it really paints a bad light on Bitcoin, almost like highlighting that it's used by criminals. And, um, and so that was the second thing that I took away from it. And then the third was how they named you know, Binance, I actually made a mistake when I was reading it. Um, I thought they were calling Binance like using dark nets, but they were kind of referring to these other ones. But it's still really, really bad for Binance to be named in like as a top receiving and sending counterparty of Bitslato that was using Russian um, ransomware groups and being a conduit for Russian uh, ransomware groups. And they named local Bitcoins, which is a really old peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace, and Binance. And they say, uh, you know, these have substantial uh, ties to Russia and significant operations in Russia. And so this is another reason to withdraw funds from Binance. And so this piece, to me, my takeaways were it basically shows how the U.S. Treasury can have special measures and have extraordinary powers to basically just throw out any alternative special measures when it decides it needs to to do what they want when it comes to stopping any kind of peer-to-peer exchange. So it set precedent there. And then it highlighted Bitcoin being used by cyber criminals. And so I would recommend reading it. Um, I learned a lot of nuance in the comments about how, you know, BISC is a little different because the servers are decentralized and it, how other truly non-custodial peer-to-peer exchanges, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to stop it at all because that's how it's truly uh, non-custodial and peer-to-peer. Um, but this definitely sets a precedent. And I, I think it's a bigger deal than people originally thought. So those are my thoughts around it. It's it's pretty, uh, it was a pretty crazy read. I'd recommend people do it. Can you post that in the nest? Yeah, sure. Jacob just taught me how to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah. that. I think it's important as Bitcoiners that we think adversarially. 
and assume that not every single person in the U.S. government is a fucking moron and that some of them are smart and they're using nefarious means to control uh, Bitcoin and hurt progress, delay progress by potentially decades by doing shit like this. It's this death from a thousand cuts strategy that I've been talking about. Like you may not be able to take down a whale in one in one blow, but if you cut it enough, it won't it'll have trouble swimming. You know, and this is I mean, I appreciate your breakdown, Sam. That's awesome. That's a horrible analogy, Ant. Ant watched that new Avatar movie, didn't you? <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. After the first one, I didn't really. I mean, I love the cinemagraphics and all that other stuff. It looks awesome. But I mean, the first one was like Fern Gully to me. And I don't want to get political, but it was like, you know, it starts getting to all this kind of green narrative. I'm, I'm not really into movies like that. So, but it's cool graphics and all that. I love all that part. The great thing about that movie, if, if you watch it, you don't need to watch Pocahontas or any of the other uh, similar films. It's the same plot. The only movie I like to watch uh, is The Last Emperor. Let's get back to what Sam was talking about. We're we're pretty sidetracked here. <laughs> I like how that was the only movie, the only one. Um, Sam, I am curious. Do you think there's any positive takeaway here in that these agencies, regulatory bodies, government actors, whatever you want to call them, are going after, as you said, you know, pretty uh, objectively bad actors. Um, is that a potential positive takeaway here, or is that just being naive and not thinking adversarially enough, in your opinion, that you know eventually they will use this on more ordinary people? Well, actually, in the report, they say how normally they wouldn't outright prohibit. Um, things matters like this they would just like censor things and add more requirements and additional record keeping information collection reporting requirements and um be really stringent about how an organization like this could open uh accounts with like u.s institutions and correspondent banking systems stuff like that um but they say that it doesn't matter with this because the uh any kind of legitimate activity that was occurring on Bitslato, um you know the illicit activity outweighed it. And so they just completely prohibit it. And so that was also concerning to me. I, I'm, not, I'm not supporting Bitslato. Like it's a really shady organization and there's a lot of uh, fraud going on through it and criminal activity. Um, but, but the fact that they're just like, nah, we'll just shut this down. You know, there can't be any legitimate activity. It's just like a crypto thing, right? That's kind of like the messaging I took away from it. It was like, all right, well, Obviously, there's not legitimate activity. It's crypto. So we'll just shut the thing down completely. This isn't like critical businesses relying on this thing. Um, and so that was kind of concerning to me as well. It's almost that's why I say it's like a precedent and, um, you know, painting this entire industry with a broad stroke uh, that it's used with by criminals. And I think, I think it's like a stepping stone, right? I mean, this is like a small thing. You saw how like, <laughs> It was like a show for them, right? They like announced it and they came on and they were like, hey, we're doing all these things and you know, look at us. We're going to you know, stop, use everything we can to stop these things. And to see, I mean, to see Binance in it, I mean, I was, I was like, man, because they're, they're currently under investigation from the DOJ anyway. And so, I mean, they're probably connecting these dots. So it just seems to me that uh, this is just kind of the first shoe to drop and there should be more enforcement actions coming forward. I mean, I don't know 
I'm not saying Binance specifically or anything, but the fact that it's specifically named in this uh, order, this FinCEN order, uh, was very concerning. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's the stepping stone and, and we should expect more enforcement actions to really ramp up um, this year. I know Jake Traversky, I think I'm saying his name right, but he's he's a lawyer. He's more like a crypto lawyer guy, but he's smart and he kind of thinks the same thing. He doesn't think that there's going to be major regulations passed or anything like that, like legislation, but he does think there's going to be a ton of enforcement actions this year. And I think that's what we should expect. Thanks. That's a good summary. And sorry, I haven't caught it yet, but what was the way they were actually able to shut down Bitslato or, or stop them from continuing to do what they were doing? Well, they're, they're going to pro- prohibit transmittal of funds um, involving Bitslato completely. Like you can't buy, sell anything that touches it. You can't receive funds from it. It's just completely off limits in every manner. And they're going to try their best to stop that. But even even now, like even with these like alternative special measures, if it's if it's a truly peer to peer marketplace, which it doesn't sound like Bitslato was. Like some people were in my comments, and I tried to learn about Bitslato, but obviously there's not that much information out there about it. Um, but you know, they can try to do these things, but we'll see if they'll actually be able to do it. I mean, it, it'll be t- tough, I think, for to stop all funds from like if somebody just like sent me Bitcoin from Bitslato, I mean, under if I'm reading this order right, then I would be breaking the law just for receiving the Bitcoin and Bitcoin specifically, the name Bitcoin specifically in that. Um, so yeah, we'll see, we'll see if they can actually do it, but that was their big takeaway. That's, that's the additional special measure that they added was just complete prohibition of the transmittal of funds. Gotcha. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those things where, they're not actually able to enforce that directly, meaning they can't actually stop that from happening, but it's more, almost sounds like more of a scare tactic just to say, Hey, anyone who, you know, touches uh, funds that once touched this entity, um, you know, watch out. Um, Maybe because those are kind of two different things, like mechanically stopping people from using it versus just saying, Hey, bad things will happen to you if you do, touch funds that that touch this entity yeah i mean it's like the tornado cash stuff right it's like after a tornado cash when the person started sending eth uh, to like high profile names that technically you know violating ofac <laughs> by receiving those but you can't stop that right um and so that's that's actually what i see here it's like it's tornado cash and then and then this it gets a peer-to-peer exchange even though it's custodial those things are like connected and they're, they're like making these moves and specifically the tornado cash. I mean, that was just like code, right? It's sanctioning code. So it's just, they are definitely moving in here. Um, and I think it's worth paying attention. Yeah. And back to the code thing uh, or on the code thing. That's also why like so many people who are Bitcoin maxis and very, um, respected in the bitcoin space i would say they're really against the i hate to bring it up again but the jason laurie idea or the idea that bitcoin is a weapon or munitions and protected by the second amendment they really want code is speech speech is protected by the first amendment want that to be a strong stronger and stronger precedent which it should be as time goes on but remember that case bernstein versus doj was only 
decided at the Ninth Circuit, the California kind of California or Western State Court of Appeals, not the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's very possible another appellate court in the U.S. Um, can go the other way and say code is not speech in this particular case, whether it's Bitcoin or tornado cash or whatever. And that would be very bad. And then you would have to fight it out in the Supreme Court, given how authoritarian the people in power are, um, whether it's the Supreme Court or elsewhere, that's, that's, that's a risky, risky endeavor to engage in. So avoiding Second Amendment is still good because half the country, I live, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Chicago, California, and everybody is, or not, it's overwhelmingly blue states. Um, so you don't want half the country to be like, oh, Second Amendment, uh, it's a, it's a munition and therefore, you know, we should regulate it. And yeah, of course, the government should control what goes in or out um, if it's a munition. Yeah, it's an it's in a lot of ways. Um, it's like a continuation of the cyber wars in the 1990s for privacy in the digital age. And I think we're in for another big battle here. And I think everyone should read Crypto by Stephen Levy, and that stands for cryptography. Um, but it's an amazing overview of what happened, what transpired in that battle between cryptographers and the U.S. government for privacy um, in the digital age back then. And in a lot of ways, we're going to still be fighting that battle. Um, but we can move on from this topic. I, thanks for letting me hash it out. I've been wanting to discuss it. Um, but John, you know, I... I don't know if you saw, like, I wanted to talk to you about this, like, what Bitcoin did episode with Josh uh, Hendrickson, I think. But he talked about, like, I don't know. Did you, did you listen to it? I did. I did. I'm a huge fan of his. Um, and I caught that episode. Yeah. 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 So he's talked about, like, high government debt in the past and during, like, war. And I, I don't know. I found that, like, really interesting i wonder if you had any thoughts on that part yeah yeah i thought that part in particular was interesting uh you know as many bitcoiners probably um have heard these comparisons what we're going through now is similar to the 1940s in many ways where we had massive amount of government spending a period of inflation um and that was a big way that we got out of that massive debt accumulation and Josh Hendrickson, uh, he's, I think he's rebel econ prof or something like that on Twitter. Um, but he's generally uh, from, from the Austrian school or he's, he's mostly aligned with those, um, that way of economic thinking. Um, but when he was on what Bitcoin did, he made this point that when you look in the past for these periods when government spending spiked massively, it's usually due to some sort of war. And because wars uh, eventually end, they can go on for a long time, but eventually they end, um, that makes it easier for government spending to go back down to something closer to the pre-war levels. Um, it's just easier to say, hey, we're not spending money on you know, sending soldiers to this place and you know, making tanks or whatever um, when the war ends. But you know, today, what is defense spending for the U.S. government? I think it's around 20%. And that's obviously not what caused uh, spending to spike in the past few years. And the majority of U.S. government spending is, uh, you can call it different things, but it's, it's really in the category of 
uh, redistribution or safety net type things. So Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, but whatever you want to call it, uh, it's very difficult for governments to pull back on that type of spending. There, there's no event like the end of a war where we say, okay, now we're going to spend less on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, so I, th- I thought that was particularly interesting because that we're always looking for these historical analogies. Um, and Lynn Alden has done such good work saying the closest analogy is probably the 1940s to what we're in right now. But no analogy is going to be perfect. So there's always going to be these differences. And I think Josh Hendrickson pointed out a pretty good one here. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just pause there to get any reactions. But I think this dovetails nicely into a tweet that Dylan LeClaire sent about the CBO, that's the Congressional Budget Office, um, about their own forecast for what things like debt to GDP will do in the next 30 years. But um, let's see if anyone has reactions to that before we, before we go there. Um, isn't, isn't another huge difference between now and the 40s the fact that after World War II, the only economy that was not com- the only industrialized economy that was not completely ravaged by the uh, by the violence of World War II was the United States, and so you know we effectively became the uh, or continued to be the manufacturing base for the entire world, and and that also had to have an impact on our ability to. Um, uh, to, to, to get rid of that debt. Uh, yes, to- totally agree with that. Um, I even have a, a list here of reasons why, uh, the ni- why things are different today than the 1940s. Again, I do think it is a good historical analogy, but looking at reasons why it's different is critical. Um, and you just raised a good one, Peter. So, and, and just some others I would list off. So, uh, yeah, U.S. is a rising power in terms of share of global GDP and ran a structural trade surplus, um, whereas today that's you know probably a waning power in terms of share of global GDP, and obviously the U.S. runs a structural trade deficit. Um, if you look at the productivity of the spending in the 40s, it primarily went to things like building industrial manufacturing facilities, sourcing commodities, um, uh, there was obviously the uh, GI Bill helping soldiers return and go to technical school or universities, but it made them more educated and ready for the domestic workforce. Uh, whereas now, you know, I think just quite frankly, most of the quote unquote stimulus during 2020 and 2021 went to keeping consumers and businesses solvent while we had a reduction in productivity that came with the, the lockdowns. Um, so I think after all that uh, spending, we don't really have more production capacity, manufacturing capacity, or more educated workforce. Um, and then a huge one to mention is demographics. So in, in the 1940s, um, much younger demographics, whereas today, uh, the people who are mostly cons- users of Social Security, Medicare, um, are older now. So the, the demographic, demographics period today, very top-heavy. Um, so that's another huge difference. So anyway, yeah, TLDR there is after all this new spending, we don't have more commodity production capacity, more industrial manufacturing or more educated workforce. So, yeah, that's a huge difference between the 1940s. Um, and then again, I would just highlight what Josh Hendrickson said, which is the spending spike that we saw 
it's not just this acute spike that comes back down. It, it just becomes a new level of government spending that um, we're likely, yeah, it might come down a little bit. I'm not saying we're going to spend the same amount in 2020 um, forever, but uh, it just doesn't come back down as much during wartime as it would during wartime spending. That was great. It makes a lot of sense too. And it doesn't seem like these uh, government officials have, you know, they're not going for austerity right now. <laughs> they're still spending up, uh, up the wazoo. But the one thing I think about, and, and Gladstein wrote a really good piece about this called The Invisible Cost of War in the Age of Quantitative Easing. Back in the 40s, you had like a major war for a couple of years. And a lot of the way that the funds were raised were through war bonds and raising taxes and things like that. Now we had these forever wars, these credit card wars, these 20 year long wars. I mean, how does that fit into this framework, John? Because you had this era of quantitative easing where, you know, they don't even call it war anymore. They call it like these conflicts and they just keep pumping money into it year after year after year. Um, You know, defense spending is crazy in the United States. And we spend more money on our military than the next nine countries combined. Um, How does that change things? Just, the way wars are kind of funded and and the length of conflicts nowadays compared to back then, does that factor in at all? I I view it as another contributing factor to austerity and fiscal surpluses becoming a a near impossibility. You just have all these, uh, you know, it's almost like a corporation that has fixed expenses it's not like they went through a period of, hey, we've, we've got some high expenses because we're building, uh, you know, this this initiative. But then once it's done, we're not going to be spending on it anymore. It's more like these fixed expenses that just end up getting funded year after year, decade after decade, whether it is uh, 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 military spending or whether it's domestic redistribution spending. Both of them just seem like fixed parts of U.S. government spending now that uh, it's really hard to see those getting reversed anytime soon. So maybe just a TLDR to all of this is uh, debt to GDP likely goes much higher. Uh, Fiscal spending does not come down anytime soon. But um, what does that mean? We probably need more uh, deficit spending or not need, but it, it results in more deficit spending. And I think the ultimate TLDR to all of this is the Fed likely has to play a persistent role in accumulating treasuries. And, and uh, that's not a uh, when I say persistent, it doesn't mean they're always buying treasuries. Obviously, right now they are not uh, buying treasuries. They're actually letting assets roll off their balance sheet. But when you look at it on a multi-year or a decade time frame, I don't think the Fed is going to be able to be absent from buying treasuries, accumulating assets for 10 years in a row. It just, uh, if you look at the example of Japan, and I know people could point out differences uh, in the U.S. situation versus Japan, but over time, the BOJ becomes a more active participant in accumulating government debt. Uh, It's very hard for them to step back once they kind of go there. And I think from that perspective specifically, I think uh, there's going to be some similarities to what we're going to see in the next decade with the the Fed and the Treasury. Uh, Terrence, what do you got? Just uh, going to um, the Dylan LeClaire's tweet storm and in the nest, which I posted, um, 
it has a chart, if you guys click on it, that shows that the deficit to uh, GDP ratio was really, really bad, uh, minus 30% in during World War II. And it was also really bad uh, during 2020, during the lockdowns, because all business stopped. And now it's approaching that level. It's already worse than what was in 2008. But all that to say that the U.S. deficit to GDP ratio in 2052, based on their projections, which might be conservative, it's um, currently two to three times better than World War II, somewhat worse than the great financial crisis, somewhat better than the COVID lockdown time. So it seems quite terrible, but potentially manageable. It's it's almost like it assumes there won't be another event like that, though, right? <laughs> like we'll just be in this time of peer, yeah, peace yeah. and <laughs> stability and there won't be yeah. another, you know, big COVID, big World War II like event in the next. Uh, what was it? What's the is it 2052, John, was the end of year? There? Yeah. Yeah. This is a 30 year analysis or forecasted analysis that they did in July of 2022. So everything goes out to 2052. Would definitely recommend people uh, take a look at it. It's on the the CPO website. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> trying yeah, to forecast the next thirty years. Uh, good luck with that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, and, and we're all to your and to your other point. We're definitely running out of the margin of safety is getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, and I think John made a great point. It's like we're we're headed towards Japan, right? And I just think of Japan like the Ouroboros. And I know there's structural differences and stuff, but like in terms of just the debt, um, it's like the snake eating its own tail. And J- Japan has that tail way down its belly right now. Uh, but, you know, we're going that route. And I just have to say this when we talk about defense spending, because it blew my mind, was like the fact that the Pentagon failed its fifth straight audit. And in 1990, the Congress passed a law directing all federal agencies to be audited. And the Pentagon has never passed it. That's just wild to me. And then in 2001, the Defense Secretary, Donald Rumsfeld, um, just announced that they just like $2.3 trillion just went missing. And they're just like, oops. And that just kind of mismanagement and wasteful spending has just continued with the Department of Defense. Just complete lack of... Of 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 controls and and the auditing, they just keep failing it, and it's just it's crazy to think about. TX, TXMC, what's up? Hey, what's up, guys? Um, thanks for letting me up here. You were talking about the CBO projections. Um, I was looking at those a few months ago, and you know the the interesting thing about them. So those projections that show the debt to GDP, that's just based on what's codified into spending now, right? That they can project, and to the point you made which is very salient, uh, none of those projections anticipate recessions ever. They don't. They're always modal outcomes, uh, best case scenarios. And if you, look at the, <clears throat> if you look at the CBO outlook, they release it every year. Uh, sometimes it comes out twice a year. Some parts of it come out twice a year. Um, if you go back to like the CBO outlook from 2019 and 2018 and 2017, and you look at what they thought interest expense would do over the next 40, 50 years, uh, it has moved forward in, by, you know, uh, I don't know how many years it is because I don't have the chart in front of me, but over the last four years, because you think, think back to the projections in 2018, 19, this pre-COVID, right? The world looked different. And so everything that's happened in the last two years has accelerated the timeline 
of interest expense surpassing all of the other big line items, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. Those were expected to happen later this century, you know, a couple decades from now, when interest, interest expense would be far and away the biggest line item in the budget. But And we, we saw just what happened this last year, right, where it ballooned to all-time highs. It looks like it's, you know, exploding in a, in a shitcoin kind of way. Um, but just what I'm trying to tie it back to is that because – the CBO projects what is codified in the law and what they know today. Those projections are always rosy. They don't account for reality. And the timeline of the interest expense growing as a portion of expenditures is accelerating beyond even what the outlook said two years ago. So just imagine what it's now going to look like a year from now or two years from now. So this idea that we've got until 2050 or something, 2047 or something like that, uh, before debt is the most expensive thing we have to take care of all the time, every year, that is not going to happen. It's probably half that time, if we think about it. It could be this decade. I'll just say quickly, and then, and then Terrence, uh, please chime in. But uh, it kind of reminds me of when the Fed comes out with forecasts of, you know, hey, we're going to raise rates by this much over the next one to two years. And then reality sets in and it's completely different. Um, it's kind of like the CBO. They just, you know, it's almost like they take a ruler and just say, here's how we forecast. We'll just, you know, put the ruler on the page and put it at this nice gradual pace. And then reality is uh, never quite that simple. <laughs> you know, and the, yeah, the last thing I forgot to say, sorry, Terrence, I'll, I'll shut up. Uh, was that the CBO projection never thinks the Fed funds rate will go above two and a half percent. That's the that's the terminal rate in the fund, the, the forecast out into the future. We're like we're at a four and a quarter percent Fed funds right now. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's good info on CBO. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's true. I, I don't know. Um, on their ridiculous projections, very, very conservative and optimistic. Um, but also speaking of reality, I would say doom is delayed yet again. I posted in the nest something by Patrick Sainer, who uh, is saying that the um, indicators of recession risk are quite mixed. Sentiment is obviously horrible and manufacturing, non-manufacturing uh, sentiment, all horrible building permits, right? We all know that. But if you look at unemployment rate, which I know is manipulated, right, a, a number that changes all the time, initial claims, um, those look pretty good. And auto sales and things like that look pretty good. So it's kind of mixed. It is very uh, mixed. I just, I just wanted to say something about uh, the CBO conversation, but then um, also want to make a comment about what, what Terrence said. Um, in case anyone's wondering, because this is kind of important, right? The CBO is forecasting debt to GDP. They're forecasting interest expense. Um, and, and TXMC mentioned what their estimates are for the Fed funds rate. Their estimates for U.S. 10-year yields are that they'll hit 3.8% in 2032 and that they'll be 4.6% in 2052. And I, I don't think the point is that we should, you know, take those as like <laughs> actually forecasting what rates are going to be at those times. But that's what their input is to the analysis. Um, and it's also just interesting that it, like this, in, in my opinion, flies at, in the face of what the Fed is kind of telling us or 
it basically just says that, you know, if the Fed is going to get Fed funds high, it's not going to stay there for very long. Um, it, it just it just really can't. And, and when I you know, maybe it could stay elevated for a year or so, but it's just it's not going to be five plus percent for years on end. Um, because you, if you look at what the CBO projects, even with like yields around 4%, it's like exploding debt to GDP. Debt to GDP goes to 185% by 2052 based on the CBO's fairly rosy projections. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. And um, they thought we would be yeah, way below where we are now two years ago. So. <laughs> Right. Sometimes it's more helpful to go back actually and look at their projections from two, five years ago than it is to look at their current projections. <laughs> That's a good point. You, you know what's interesting, John, too? Like if you look at this, their projections, because I did this because I'm, I'm just a mutant, uh, and I went like year by year, 16, 2017, 2018, and I looked at how they thought debt to GDP would be improved once they started running QT, and they actually reduced their idea of how quickly debt costs would spiral because they were running QT and the, the budget outlook came out during that period of time. Uh, and then we know obviously Powell pivoted in 2019 in January and then, you know, was done in September. Uh, so it, it's just kind of interesting that they, even their own outlooks have like a recency bias to them and they have, they're, in, they're incredibly flawed. It reminds me of, uh, I can't even remember if this was the fed or if it was, the BOE might have been both, but they had some. Maybe the Fed had a paper on their website about forecasting how their balance sheet would come down, and they removed that paper. But then also the BOE, some they had a speech about reducing their balance sheet. But then when all the nonsense happened in the gilts market, they just canceled the speech. Um, so that's one way to just uh, have people forget about your forecasts. Yeah, just stop giving them. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for uh sharing your knowledge dxmc you uh you run the numbers which is why i respect you my brother so everyone give this guy a follow um i want to throw this out there to anybody really um but what about like the next let's say three six months like what are you looking at what do you think is important um to keep an eye on to kind of see where the economy might be going and then maybe tie it back to Bitcoin. John, do you, are you looking at anything specifically or Terrence or anything? Yeah, I'll just make a general comment. And it, it kind of hits on what Terrence was describing about, you know, may not be as uh, doomy of, of an outlook as some people forecast. I, I would generally put myself in, in the doomy outlook category, but it maybe it's not going to be like imminent crisis. I, I think um, an analogy might be, we may run into like an economic malaise, like, yes, it's probably going to be recessionary by most indicators, but it might not be recession. Like obviously 2020 was just incredibly unique where there were lockdowns and no, I don't think anyone's forecasting that again in the near future. And I don't think it's going to be like 2008 where there's an industry that just absolutely, uh, uh, turns into this massive bubble and it collapses and there's knock on effects throughout the economy. I think it might be more like post 2001 uh, recession where it's more like an economic malaise and activity is slowing where, you know, there's layoffs, um, but it's not like mass unemployment and an industry 
industry just kind of bursting. So that's my general outlook on the next, you know, six to 12 months is more like malaise, kind of like grinding sideways or down in terms of economic activity. Um, and then, yeah, longer term, still looking for these uh, analyses that basically point to the TLDR, which is that the Fed is going to have to get more involved in treasury markets over like a five to 10 year time horizon. So those are the things that are generally interesting to me. Yeah, for me, the next three to six months um, is probably looking at a lot of what's going on in the U.S. And that can um, be the driver of Bitcoin, notwithstanding Japan, which seems to be on pause. But obviously, they're a big uh, factor in how U.S. dollar does and perceived a demand for by foreign buyers because there's such a big foreign buyer of U.S. treasuries and so forth. So that can affect rates and what the Fed does to some extent. Um, China reopening will be an interesting one because they had their ridiculous COVID lockdowns and were extremely unproductive. And now they're opening up come hell or high water. Um, so they're arguably suppressing COVID death numbers and just reopening because they don't want their people just all mass protested right, um, uh, several weeks ago. So they're worried about that. And they do need to get their economy going again. We'll see what happens with that. And then Europe um, continues to have warm weather. So the, all the energy issues, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in the next uh, several weeks with the weather there and energy. But it seems like they've escaped kind of disaster, as has the American Northeast in terms of energy usage and that impacting the economy and confidence and so forth. But yeah, basically just looking at the big um, economies, right? And what they're doing in terms of impact of Bitcoin, Bitcoin needs at some point to grow up and become not a risk asset, but a risk off asset, which it is like you and you and everyone in this room, I think, or at least everyone on stage and many people in the audience uh, think Bitcoin's a risk-off asset, but it needs to start acting like one and being much less correlated with um, uh, stocks, for example. And maybe I can just add one more thing that's a little more uh, near-term focused. Something I'm looking for to see how it plays out is what I would call the the Fed versus the yield curve. And... You know, I think everyone knows the yield curve is inverted right now. So front end rates are significantly higher than rates out the curve. And yield curves don't stay inverted the way they are for long periods of time. So th this will be an oversimplification, but uh, you usually see yield curves invert. And then it's like one to two years before a recession happens. And then the Fed cuts rates. Uh, so front end rates fall and the yield curve becomes positively sloping again. And there's, of course, another way for the yield curve to become uninverted, and that's the longer points on the curve would rise significantly relative to the front end. And that's kind of what the Fed is implying is going to happen. You know, their whole soft landing scenario, it's, oh, it's going to be a slowdown, but it's a soft landing. We're going to keep rates high until we get back to 2% CPI. And they've said they want to get to 5 plus percent at the front end, right? D different Fed governors have said that. And they've said they want to see positive uh, real rates across the curve. That's what the Fed is saying. But the yield curve is saying, no, no, no. 
all these Fed funds rate hikes are going to cause us to go into a recession, and that recession is going to cause the Fed to cut rates. So I think it is this kind of Fed versus the yield curve scenario right now. We're going to see that play out, I think, over the next six months or so. And I think the, the million-dollar question kind of related to all of this is, is whatever economic slowdown we're seeing now that's likely to continue, is that going to cause CPI to print closer to 2%? Because if it does, then the Fed has a much easier time of saying, hey, look, everyone, we got CPI under control. Now we can cut rates. That's consistent with our uh, monetary theory. So we're going to cut rates. It just becomes way harder for them to say, okay, we see there's a recession, but CPI is still printing 5% and we're going to cut rates. That, that would be really difficult. So that's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing play out. I, I think we're going to see some really interesting things in the next three, six, nine months. All right. We're getting up close here to the end of the show. We need to make some closing comments and then move towards wrapping. So, uh, Sam, if you want to uh, make some closing comments, we'll let John or anybody else do that, and then we'll wrap. Yeah, I'll just kind of piggyback what John was just saying there. It is interesting to see the 10-year yield um, still kind of down from its um, all-time high or recent high of about 4.5%, and now it's down here. So that shows that investors are like piling into the long end right now, perhaps um, as a fleet of safety, expecting a recession is around the corner and that the Fed will cut rates. But I, I do think about how there might be structural issues in terms of the inflation if we actually have, um, you know, shortages of, of energy, as well as a deglobalization, as well as a labor shortage that could elevate uh, the cost of living just more structurally. And so you could see inflation kind of hover, um, you know, instead of going down to 2%, you know, what, what the Fed wants could hover above that. And then you're if you're long if you're in the long end of the bond and you're in like 30 year bonds or 20 year bonds or 10 year like you have to start thinking about that like okay there's purchasing power risk to these bonds do I really want to hold this for 20 or 30 years let's say and take on this inflation risk if I think it's going to be more structural inflation and so you could see uh, capital flow out of the long end and then the yield start to go up uh, which would be a really interesting dynamic right it's like uh, this this fleet of safety that has been a fleet of saf- safety as the Fed cuts rates every single time, um, maybe not be there anymore if the Fed is not going to cut rates and then we have more structural inflation. So I definitely think that the the yield curve versus uh, the Fed, like what John was saying, is a really, really interesting thing to keep an eye on. And just uh, thanks for everyone for listening. It was a really fun conversation. All right, Terrence or TXMC, do you guys have anything you want to close with? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I think that there's like a Pavlovian anticipation of an imminent Fed pivot. People have been calling for it for a year and they've been wrong time and time again. Um, there's clearly a lot of people, myself included, right, who are learning things in this bear market for the first time. Uh, but I think that there's also a a warped expectation of how quickly these things are supposed to happen. And it's actually longer than most people anticipate. And, you know, we're talking about the yield curve. That's one of the clearest signals of what the economy is likely to do over the next couple of years when it inverts. The three-month tenure being the most accurate of all of those signals. I've tested them myself. And if you go back all the way to the Great Depression, every time it's inverted, we've had a recession within about 18 months. 
12 to 18 months and it inverted in October. So it just began. So the, the probability is that a recession is coming this way. The probability is historically very consistent that it's probably not till Q3 or Q4. And in the meantime, we could see upside because people see inflation coming down. But my core thesis is that the Fed will not be able to simply pivot back to good times if we get a random 2% print on headline CPI. Because what they're really looking at is the core sticky stuff inside of there that's attached to people's wages, right? And we have these demographic things we've been talking about, a structural limitation in the amount of workers available. We have 4 to 5% annual wage growth ever since COVID consistently. That, that, those things are not consistent with a future that has 2% inflation. So I think that we have some structural issues that are going to make it more challenging than people think. I think that the recession is coming, but it's going to take longer than the average person thinks, uh, unless something bad, just you know, some kind of tail event happens. Uh, but those things all point to further downside. Um, so I'm generally bearish just based on history, right? I'm not making this up. Uh, this is just the averages. So I remain pretty cautious, pretty skeptical. I'd love to be proven wrong. Uh, but I think that we're maybe like at, at least a year or so from digging our way out of this. But because Bitcoin is a fire alarm installed on the profligacy of the fiat system, it will be one of the first things to signal the recovery. And I believe it will lead the way out. Uh, but if you ask me when that is, I don't think it's in 2023. TXMC, did I hear you correctly saying that if we pivot, it's probably going to be Q3, Q4? No. Um, okay. If there is a Missed recession that. coming, which history suggests, the yield curve tells us it's not realistic until Q3, Q4. It's usually at least 12 to 18 months after the yield curve. The soonest we've ever had it happen was just inside a year. So it's almost always beyond that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, John Hart, closing comments? Yeah, um, in enjoyed all those comments from TXMC and, and Sam and Terrence and everyone else. Uh, so thanks to everyone for hanging. And I guess... I would say, you know, TXMC made me think of this um, as he was speaking just now, but maybe it, based on things that have happened in the past, specifically during COVID, we got uh, accustomed to very quick reactions from uh, the Fed and the Treasury. You know, something happens and the, the Fed reacts and the Treasury reacts with like a massive response and things play out very quickly, whether it was to the downside or to the upside. Maybe going forward, we're going to have to get used to things playing out on a longer time horizon, um, trends playing out on a longer time horizon, whether that's a recession coming, we have malaise for like a few years in a row, rather than like the COVID lockdowns being a spike down and then a spike back up. Um, and then, you know, same thing with CPI, maybe it's going to be stickier and it's going to be there for a while. So I would just encourage everyone to try to keep an eye on the uh, longer term trends rather than, you know, trying to be a trader, trying to trade the, the ups and downs in the next few months. That's obviously very difficult to do. Um, pro professionals can sometimes do it, but even they get it wrong. Um, so yeah, I would just say the, the long-term thesis um, that Bitcoiners have, I think remains intact. Uh, if someone has a thesis as to why Bitcoin is going to remain a $400 billion market cap asset and, and, and not grow from there, I'd love to hear it. Um, but I, I certainly don't see the logic there. Um, but again, it might take some years to play out. So uh, keep that long-term thesis um, and, and look forward to more of these chats on, on Fridays in the future. Fantastic. Okay. 
Uh, that's pretty much it. I want to thank all of you guys for being here. Sam Callahan, John Har, TXMC, everybody who's been up here today. Do appreciate you guys. Fantastic conversation for Swan Private Macro Friday. It's a good way to end the week. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Coming up next week, some pretty cool stuff on Monday. We've got Keat.io. Tuesday is going to be Texas Slim and the Beef Initiative. Wednesday, Per Byland. Thursday, Inheritance Planning. Um, that's going to be a cool thing with uh, Matt McClintock and oh, my brain is not remembering his name. Paul Tarantino. Sorry, Paul. I love your brother. Uh, and then the following Monday, we're going to do uh, Bitcoin or new, new to Bitcoin Q&A. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry to chill, talk about what's going on. We do this every day, Monday through Friday, live on Twitter spaces, 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, roll for two hours. If you can't catch the live show, it is also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. You can throw me or Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of this show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I am your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me a DM. I'm happy to help you. You can shoot any Swan a DM. We're, we're all, like, always happy to help you guys. Thanks again to the speakers, both today and every day. Appreciate what you guys do, taking your personal time to teach people about this bright orange future. This is what we call get on the mission. Love all of you guys. Everybody go out there and have a great day today and crush it.